Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-9. How is sin expressed in the Bible? Generally, I think for most people, the word sin is generically defined to mean any action that violates the Bible's laws, God's laws. Let's take a look at this idea together. Ancient Roads. This is the podcast of Ancient Roads. Real Israel Talk Radio. Take me home. Join us for the next hour as we explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Now, here's our host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Once again, welcome back to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and on this podcast, we're going to dig into the idea of sin. Sin, what exactly is it? Now, one would think that this term should be easy to understand when we consider that, you know, it is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, whether one is reading from what is called the Old Testament or what is called Tanakh, that is the Torah, the prophets and the writings, or even reading from the New Testament or what is called the Habrita Hadashah or simply Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. So, generally, I think for most people, the word sin is kind of a generic idea. And it generally refers to something of an action that violates any of God's laws. And that could be the Ten Commandments, it could be man's law, it could be religious law, a real kind of catch-all phrase that refers to doing wrong and, uh, you know, having feelings like, uh, well, I shouldn't have done that. I've sinned. I shouldn't have thought that particular thing. I've sinned. Uh, you know, I, it's all evolving. It's involving actions and, uh, and thoughts and ideas. I think you generally can get the picture of what this idea of sin refers to in normal uh, everyday life through society's definition of what sin would be. But in the biblical narratives, this really goes a whole lot deeper. And of course, uh, rightly so, it's based on the Hebrew language. So I want to dig into the Hebrew language and uh, take a look at some of these definitions from the Hebrew words that are used for sin. And then in that way, I think we can get a much better idea of what we're looking at and what we're uh, dealing with here when we're trying to define this idea or this concept. So let's uh, go into the minds of the uh, biblical redactors of Scripture and see how they would have understood the idea of sin uh, essentially, as the Almighty Eternal One would represent it through His Word, what uh, what is spoken of as the Bible. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, 
Sin actually has three different categories. These categories of sin are uh, three different Hebrew words, and I'm going to give those to you in a moment. First, let's take a look at a few passages of Scripture that will help us to better understand where we're going here with this particular lecture or program, okay? I want to turn to Exodus 34, 7. Now, here's a statement. Keeping mercy for thousands. This is Jehovah speaking. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Here is Psalm 32, 5. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, says the writer of this psalm, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yudhevavhe. Another passage would be Isaiah 59.12. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. Jeremiah 33 verse 8 is another passage that has these ideas embedded into the text. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Ezekiel 21.24 Therefore, thus says Jehovah Elohim, because you have made your iniquity to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings, your sins appear. I also want to look at Daniel 9.24. Daniel 9.24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, I've given you a handful of passages represented by the Hebrew scriptures, I'm not dealing with the New Testament or Brihadashah references yet. This is just strictly from the passages that use Hebrew to express their ideas. Now, in these passages that I just spoke about to you, you'll, of course, notice that there are three different words being used for this idea or concept that we're referring to as sin. Those words are iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, they're not always in that particular order. Sometimes the order will actually be a little bit different depending on the passage that is being quoted. For example, in Jeremiah 33, 8, I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. And uh, then there's passages like Isaiah 59, 12. 
Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. So you can see, there are these three individual words in English that uh, are given to us, but yet in the Hebrew, there are three different terms that are being used. So I would ask the question, oh, what do each of these words mean in Hebrew? And then that will then take us into the English or pretty much any translation of the Bible, and it will at least help us to properly convey or transmit or interpret the ideas, the concepts that are being presented from the Hebrew language. Now, I want to start with the term sin. The word sin is from a Hebrew verb that is spelled chet, tet, aleph. Chet, tet, aleph. The word chet, tet, and aleph for the word sin means at its very core definition, it means to miss a mark or a goal. That's what it refers to at its very core understanding. The verb chet tet aleph is also uh, spelled with a different vowel pointing as chita, chita. And that is a word for the term wheat, wheat. So you might ask the question, what does missing the mark or the goal, or if you will, sin, what does it have to do with the idea of wheat? You know, the stuff that we make bread out of. How is that defined? How is that connected or in some way identified with a sin? I'll come back to that in just a moment. Often, I will tell you that on the third letter of this root, the chet, tet, and aleph, the third letter, the aleph, it actually can, in some cases, have an interchangeable form with the Hebrew letter he. In some cases, it can. In other words, aleph and he, sometimes in Scripture, can be interchanged and give us very similar meanings, even though they are two different roots. So let's now come back to this idea of the roots that express this idea of what we call in English sin, chet, tet, aleph. That's for the word sin. The word transgression is pei, shin, ein, Pei shin ein, and another one is a root ein vav nun or ein vav nun sofit. That is the ending letter, the third letter, the nun, is an extended letter in the Hebrew language referring to a nun sofit, a final letter. But 
The short end of this whole thing is that there are three words. Chata, Pesha, Avon. That's how I would pronounce them with the way that they are uh, expressed through the verbs. Okay, so let's go into this idea of sin or chata or chita, okay? Now, I ask the question, what does this word sin, chata, have to do with chita, wheat? What in the world is this all about? Why does it connect in Hebrew scripture so that we get this word chita for wheat? I think I would like to direct you to Matthew chapter 13. And you'll remember in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Yeshua gives uh, a story about uh, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's expressing it as it was explained through two characters, one who sows seed in a field, and that seed is wheat, and another who sows seed in a field, and those are tares, or in Greek it's darnel. So he refers to the one that sows the darnel, the Greek word for tares, he refers to that one as an enemy. And these seeds are sown among grains of wheat in a field. Another parable he put forth to them, to those listening to his parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Those are the verses 24 through 26. And so in this field, in this parable of the field of the wheat and the tares, the field in the story becomes terribly corrupted because it contains a mixture of wheat and tares. So the Second Temple period listeners of that story uh, who were listening to these, uh, these ideas and these parables Personally, I don't think that it was anything shocking to them because it had been taught in oral tradition way back uh, from basically, uh, they say, from the days of Abraham. Uh, but it, uh, it could be uh, as old as that or it could be any time between Abraham and the days of Yeshua. Really, it doesn't matter. It was still an oral tradition. And it was presented that the tree in the Genesis story, that's Genesis chapter 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, pronounced as its, might have actually been a very large stalk of wheat resembling one of the towering cedars of Lebanon. 
Now, look, I know that the rabbinic stories like to embellish things and add a lot of different uh, elements to their stories. The rabbis do this a lot, and I'm not faulting them for doing that. We all tell stories, and if you have children, you know, you'll tell stories and you might embellish things a little bit and you might be reading through a book for a nighttime book story to your son or daughter who's very little and you might embellish things a little bit. Look, the rabbis have been doing this for a long time. So again, I wouldn't be so hard on them. It's just a way of expressing ideas through stories. Back in the Garden of Eden, it's really not so far-fetched to think that everything was very large and, uh, you know, very lush and green and full of all kinds of life before the fall. It's just really not so outlandish to think about things like this. In fact, the rabbis have even gone on over the many, many ages to tell stories about the size, yes, the physical stature of Adam. That, in fact, they would say through a story, through a tradition, that he was a very tall man. Well, we actually have some of that idea expressed when the people in the Hebrew scriptures in Tanakh had identified King Saul as their king. So for an example, I would like to take us to 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, the son of Zoror the son of Bechorat, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man mighty of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul or Shaul. There was not a more handsome person than he among all the children of Israel. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here you can see that Saul, King Saul, was chosen because of his tall nature, his tall stature, and the fact that he was a very handsome kind of guy. But he was very large. And that might translate into, uh, you know, a king who is strong and able to lead the nation out into battle and lead them back in safely because they would be relying on what they're looking at. The idea of tallness, the idea of stature, the idea of being strong. And I suppose we could also take us over to Genesis 6, 4, where the uh, narrative talks about the giants on the land in those days. And uh, it says that they were, in fact, giants. Okay, and uh, the Hebrew word is nephilim. Nephilim, that is the uh, fallen ones, or sometimes understood to be the mighty ones. So I'm bringing all of this out to show you, in fact, that this idea of stature and being tall and being robust or mighty, that it could, in fact, 
have also applied to Adam in the garden. Since it was also discussed about the giants of the land in Genesis 6 and in 1 Samuel 9, it's uh, uh, identified as uh, a characteristic of King Saul. And uh, you get the idea of this very tall statue or kind of nature. So, in fact, maybe it was. Maybe it was that in the Garden of Eden, a wheat stalk was, in fact, very, very large, giving it a look of being like a tree, an etz. So many, many writings of the rabbis and the stories put forth through oral tradition Uh, Many of them refer to this idea that a tree can, in fact, be uh, wheat. It could be a mustard tree. It can be any woody or stalk kind of plant. It can, in fact, be that because the word etz, ein, tzadi, is about a woody kind of plant. That is actually some of the definition of what it refers to. And, uh, uh, you know, a stalk of wheat could in fact have a woody kind of texture, as can any kind of plant or any kind of grain that has this idea. Okay? So that's all I want to say on that. So here is a snippet of a teaching from Rabbinic Judaism about that particular idea and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the tree whereof Adam and Eve ate? Rabbi Meir said, It was wheat. For when a person lacks knowledge, people say that man has never eaten bread of wheat. And in a similar vein, Rabbi Shmuel ben Itzak asked Rabbi Zira. Is it possible that it, referring to the tree, the etz, was wheat in the Garden of Eden? And his answer is, yes, but surely tree is written, he argued, because he saw that it was written with an ein and a tzadi. So he argued, it grew lofty like the cedars of Lebanon. Of course, the meaning is that the cedars of Lebanon grew to a very great height. Therefore, a wheat stalk could have grown so high that it could easily look like some gigantic tree, kind of like what we would see today. Nonetheless, there is one problem with this concept that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was large and tall like wheat or what we could call a wheat tree. The problem that I personally see with that idea is that Yeshua's parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 25 through 27, it speaks about wheat and tares, wheat and tares. So to me, this implies that the tree of life was the pure, 100% pure wheat stalk or wheat tree. And you know, if you go on the internet and you search for wheat, oftentimes you will find that wheat is classified as the food or grain of life. 
the food or grain of life. So it's not so out of place, it's not so outlandish to think, well, maybe the tree of life was a wheat stalk, a huge one. It's possible, who knows? But according to the way Yeshua identifies it in the parable, it could easily be that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was 100% pure wheat. So to me, this implies that the tree of life was wheat and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tear or what you would call the tear tree. So let's come back in just a moment and I want to talk about this idea of sin and just bring out a few more elements about what this really is getting at when we read our Bible and see this word sin. You are listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Episode 20-9. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Join us as we continue to explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Once again, here's your host, Avi ben Mordechai. I want to continue talking more about this idea of chata or chita, I want to talk about this idea of sin so that we can have a proper and accurate understanding when we read our Bible and see this word sin, or even when you say the word sin, or you say to somebody, stop sinning, or you say to yourself, I'm sinning. Understand what you're saying because it's important. What was the tree whereof Adam and Eve ate? Rabbi Meir said, It was wheat. For when a person lacks knowledge, people say that man has never eaten bread of wheat. And in a similar vein, Rabbi Shmuel ben Itzak asked Rabbi Zira, Is it possible that it, referring to the tree, The etz was wheat in the Garden of Eden. And his answer is, yes, but surely tree is written, he argued, because he saw that it was written with an ein and a tzadi. So he argued, it grew lofty like the cedars of Lebanon. Of course, the meaning is that the cedars of Lebanon grew to a very great height. Therefore, a wheat stalk could have grown so high that it could easily look like some gigantic tree, kind of like what we would see today. Nonetheless, there is one problem with this concept that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was large and tall like wheat or what we could call a wheat tree. The problem that I personally see with that idea is that Yeshua's parable in Matthew chapter 13, verses 25 through 27, it speaks about wheat and tares, wheat and tares. So to me, this implies that the tree of life was the pure 100% 
pure wheat stalk or wheat tree. So it's not so out of place. It's not so outlandish to think, well, maybe the tree of life was a wheat stalk, a huge one. It's possible. Who knows? But according to the way Yeshua identifies it in the parable, it could easily be that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was 100% pure wheat. So to me, this implies that the tree of life was wheat and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tear or what you would call the tear tree. Why? Because that tree was bent and twisted and distorted, just like Yeshua's parable, where it says that the tear was darnel, and in the Greek language, the darnel was poison. It was twisted. It was distorted. It was bent. It had no life. All it contains is poison or death. So it's no good. In other words, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil could have easily looked like a wheat stalk, a huge one. But in reality, it was a tear and wheat stalk. It was a wheat stalk with tears. It was a mixture because it says in the Hebrew language, etzadato vera the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a mixture. So with a rather strange sense of irony, the rabbinic teachers of the story might have inadvertently twisted, bent, and distorted the truth. So the point that I'm driving at here is that chita, that is wheat, and chata, sin, I'll give it to you again. Chita is wheat and chata is sin. Both of the verbs are linked for a reason. Chata means to miss a mark or a goal. Whereas chita is not about missing a mark or a goal. Not at all. It's about attaching oneself to life and good by eating from the bread of life in the garden, the wheat tree of life, okay? And I might add, with no added poison such as glyphosate, which is a chemical of a large corporation that uh, makes a product called Roundup. But that's another story for another time. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, but how did they sin? I think the idea would be that they missed the mark or the goal. That's what started that process. They missed the mark or the goal, the chata of the tree of life, which would be the chita, that is the wheat tree or the wheat stalk of life. So by not eating from the tree of life, the chita, they ate from the poison tares of the etzadato vera, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in so doing, they mixed 
They ate the mixture of the good and the evil. They ate the mixture of the chita and the chata, which fits perfectly with the story of the parable that Yeshua taught in Matthew chapter 13 of the wheat and the tares. Adam and Eve would have missed the mark or the goal of the pure, 100% pure tree of life, the Etzachim. They were essentially snookered into becoming one with a wheat lookalike sown into the field by an enemy. And that, you can see, Matthew 13, 25 through 27. Matthew 13, 25 through 27. So, that fits the whole scenario of the biblical narrative, the story about an enemy of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. The enemy is the Nachash, the serpent. He would be identified in the story as the enemy, the one who sowed tares among wheat. Very interesting idea. So that is the idea of sin in the English language. Sin is wheat, chita, and chata, which is missing a mark or a goal because we miss the mark or the goal of the Torah, the Torah of the kingdom of heaven. He is the word, exactly as John 1.14 says, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is what we missed. We missed the word. We missed the goal exactly also as Paul expressed it in Romans chapter 10. Let's take a quick look. So in Romans 10 and specifically in verse 4, we learn for Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, from a previous podcast, we learned what righteousness is. Righteousness in Hebrew is identified as justness. That is, to be declared just or innocent or blameless. So it's not about having a blameless moral character. It's rather about having a blameless, innocent, perfect, just, spiritual condition. That's the idea of righteousness in Hebrew. So, Messiah is the end. The Greek word there is telos. So, the Greek word is going to express the concept of the goal. The goal. Not the end as in the Hebrew word ketz. The Hebrew word ketz is the term for end, but I don't think it's going to be that word. I think it's going to be the end in the sense of a goal in the Greek language. So Messiah is the goal of the Torah for what? For innocence, purity, blamelessness, things like this uh, defines Messiah as being the goal of the law to give us blamelessness, innocence, perfection, 
righteousness, justness, and it is given to everyone who will believe or have faith. That is the idea of a copy and paste function to look at the face of Messiah and put on his glory and grace. This is the idea. And this is why I think it's so important that we get the concept of sin into a way that we really understand it. It's simply missing the mark or the goal. Missing the mark or the goal. Of what? Of justness, of blamelessness, of perfection, of purity. Because it is Messiah that wants to declare every one perfect, blameless, innocent, and holy. It's Messiah and his finished work that wants to declare each one of us as having a condition, a spiritual condition of blamelessness, innocence, and perfection. He wants us to have his status rather than us trying to work so hard and try to earn through being deserving of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. No, we don't deserve anything. All we deserve is death. And the sin and death routine that Paul talks about is all about that in the book of Romans. So we have to take on the similar idea. And you know, just from a cultural viewpoint of being in Israel, you know, if you ever go to a, uh, a sports event, say like footy or soccer or, you know, kicking a ball around and you're watching a couple of teams play out in the field, you'll hear the supporters of the Israeli teams, you know, supporting uh, the, the game. And when the opponents are kicking the ball, you know, sometimes you'll hear all of the Israelis in the stadium. They'll all be yelling out, you know, in kind of like one accord. They'll be saying, chet, 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 chet. And, you know, because that is the, 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 the word that's the root to the term chita or chata for sin or wheat. You see, what they're yelling out is, miss, miss, miss. They're saying, chet, miss the goal. Chet, miss the mark. Chet, don't get the ball in the net. Go ahead, miss it. We want the point. So it's that kind of idea. Okay? So we know that this idea of chita, wheat, and chata is all about missing a mark or a goal. So you have to be careful when you're reading through the New Testament, particularly the New Testament in Greek, and make sure that you don't mix up the ideas that we're looking at in regards to sin. Because not all sin is iniquity, not all sin is transgression, and not all sin is sin, as we would identify it specifically in the Bible. Okay, now that we have addressed this idea of sin, I want to come back on the next podcast, and we're going to take a look at the second idea of what sin represents, and it is through the Hebrew word pesha, pesha, that's pay, 
Shin Ein, Pesha. And this word has a very specific Hebrew meaning, a very specific Hebrew connotation. So, for example, we could turn to passages like First uh, Kings chapter 8, verse 50, where the prayer is from uh, King Solomon, who says, Forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them. So here, the idea of transgression is used in this context of sin. And similarly, in the Brihadashah or the New Testament, we also have this idea of a transgression. Take a look at a passage like uh, Matthew, Matityahu, chapter 15, verse 2, where uh, the uh, uh, religious leaders, the elders, uh, approach Yeshua and they ask him the question, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Yeshua responded to that very pointed question with his answer saying, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? So what is this idea of transgress or transgression? How should we understand this term as it relates to the Hebrew scriptures where it's used quite regularly in a lot of different uh, you know, settings and scenarios? That's what I want to take a look at here. The English word transgression. So the English term transgression or to transgress is derived in its meaning from the Hebrew word pesha, pesha. And I'll spell that for you. It is pei shin ein, pei shin ein, pesha. Now, I'm putting vowel pointings to that. In other words, I'm giving you the three letters of the consonants, but I'm adding my own vowel pointing to it to give you the sound pesha. But there can be other sounds to this with very similar ideas that I'm going to express to you here. Now, the word pesha in Hebrew is an idea, it's a concept that defines a breaking of trust, a breaking of trust. That is, someone who has broken trust, someone who has become uh, unfaithful to a particular decree or a particular contract or has become unfaithful to something that was said or something that was promised. That's the idea of Pesha, it is an idea of unfaithfulness or infidelity. So when you see this word transgress or transgression, 
try to put your mind into the, uh, you know, into the focus of the Hebrew scripture word Pesha. And you will get a really good understanding of what this word means, how it's being used in the context of the narrative. A breaking of trust, infidelity, unfaithfulness to something that may have been said or promised or spoken of. You know, it's that kind of idea. And we have lots of scripture references that will attest to this concept, this idea. So, if you will, why don't you open up your Bible and follow along with me and I'll show you some of these ideas from both the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures Tanakh, or if you will, Brihadashah, and also the Hebrew Scripture, what's called Tanakhi, Tanakhi. Okay, Hebrew scripture. So let's go to 1 Kings 12, verse 19. Here, the very first word is Pesha in 1 Kings 12, 19. And we can read it as follows. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Again, the idea is rebellion. Rebellion is transgression. Transgression is rebellion. And you can have other words that are going to have a similar idea in English. Not just rebellion or transgression, but also a breaking of trust, an infidelity, an unfaithfulness to some particular contract or covenant. Something that was said, something that was promised. And when you don't do it, when you violate your word, you are in Pesha. You are in rebellion. Let's take a look at 2 Kings 1.1. This was the story of the king of Moab or Moab. It says in that text, Moab or Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahav or after the death of Ahab. So here there is the idea posited to give us the concept of rebellion. The king of Moab rebelled against Israel because the king of Moab had put his people and his nation into a particular covenant, which you can read about in that text. And in that covenant, there was a promise made. There was a covenant made. There was a promise that was presented and the king of Moab did not follow through with his word, with his promise. So therefore, there was rebellion, and that's how it's identified in the Hebrew text. In 2 Kings 3, 5, it says it again, but it happened when Ahab or Achav died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So again, the idea of rebellion. And again in 2 Kings 
It reads, He went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? That was Ahab sending a message to the king of Judah in Judea, saying to Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against this rebellious king? Because he did not follow through with the covenant that he promised that he would according to his word. And we'll come back and look at this on the next podcast as we're going through this idea of what sin is all about. Stay with us and we'll be back next time. This is Avi Ben Mordechai. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio with your host Avi Ben Mordechai. We hope that you have discovered some fresh insights into the ancient biblical Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. This podcast was brought to you by the Outreach Ministry of Coming Home. Visit our website at www.cominghome.co.il. If you have questions or comments, direct them by email to questions at cominghome.co.il. Again, questions at cominghome.co.il. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, with your host, Avi ben Mordechai. We hope you have discovered fresh insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Yah willing, we'll see you next time for Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. (laughs) 